Nicola is Communications and Media Relations Director at the Pioneer Institute. He has edited several volumes of essays by diverse contributors for the Pioneer Institute over the years, and the latest one is called City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. It's co-edited with Jamie Gass. Welcome. Uh, uh, buona mattina, signora Sinocola. Grazie, Mark. Buona mattina, buon Natale. It's great to, great to be with you. Say, well, okay, first, uh, why this collection now? Uh, I mean, what, what motivated, anything particular motivated the project other than the just sort of the general, um, yeah, the general condition of civics education in the United States? Sure. Well, I think that's probably about right, the general condition of civics education in the United States. And to say um, abject horror might be too strong at this point. I mean, but it might not be. <laughs> Depending on where you look, you see a fairly consistent decline in uh, standardized test scores, things like the national, uh, you know, the NEEP scores, uh, the nation's report card, if you will. And then state by state, when you look at different test scores, depending on what uh, regimen the states use, um, things seem pretty dismal. And also the move away from things like the SAT, uh, de-emphasis on standardized testing for admission to college, makes it all the more difficult to gauge how young people are actually doing. And in the case of civics and history specifically, it's extremely difficult because it's not tested, even in a state like Massachusetts, which prides itself on a long history of, of strong public education and innovation in education, charter schools, and so forth. There is no high-stakes test. There's no component in our, what we call the Massachusetts Comprehensive Assessment System tests, the MCAS. Um, we'd like there to be. Pioneer advocates that. Um, so it makes it very difficult uh, to know what do young people know about the origin of the country. Um, you know, it seems to me that uh, we did, Pioneer did a... Um, poll not too long ago, uh, and the poll asked uh, several hundred Massachusetts residents questions that the uh, new immigrants would face trying to become Americans. The average score was 63%. So, the good news there? Uh, uh, D minus? <laughs> yeah, D minus. Uh, you know, you're looking at 60% to pass if you're an aspiring American. And of course, aspiring Americans generally score 95 to 100% of these tests because they're very motivated to become part of this country and they want their piece of the American dream. And that's the good news. The not so good news is that Americans who are already here, who in some cases you know, may have been here for many generations, don't know things like what branches of government we have and how many years a senator serves and so forth. So um, yeah, I would say that's part of the reason, that kind of uh, dismay at the decline and the t decline both in the teaching of this, the decline in reading about history, the use of primary sources in favor of an entire new industry of things which are trendy and which are surface, I would say. Um, so, G in Give me an example of, yeah. of, of the trendy that might be sort of crowding out uh, the civics instruction. Sure. So one very simple example, you know, I think growing up, uh, people of a certain age learned about George Washington, and they learned a few things that probably weren't true about the axe and the cherry tree. <laughs> but nonetheless, they did get around to things like, okay, Washington was the first president the father of his country, and that when he left office, he left office. And that was a really important moment in U.S. history because it established this very long tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. So, um, you know, one of the reasons that, that people still come to this country is because they understand that here there is that tradition. They're not going to be, you know, attacked and set upon by mobs and, and ousted in coup d'etat and so forth. 
Um, so people used to learn things about Washington. And instead, today, young people, some of them uh, in some school districts, about all they know about Washington is that he held slaves. Well, if that's all you know about Washington, you're missing out most of the picture. And, you know, the, the criticism that, well, U.S. history for a long, long time was sort of this, you know, dead white males and all the rest of it. Okay, fair enough. There are some criticisms to be, to be made and to be leveled. And they're fair criticisms in some cases. But if young people don't understand the origin story, if they don't understand the basics of it, they're being asked to take on things which are way beyond their, their years. They don't have the context for them. And this leads to, well, it leads to what a lot of people, even myself in college experience, where you go in there as a freshman, you, know, you don't really know that much. You haven't necessarily studied Western civilization, the Greeks and Romans sufficiently. And you suddenly are taking a bunch of courses that are tearing down the West and tearing down Christianity. And that trend has continued and I think has become more and more acute over time so that young folks don't know very much about history at all. And this is a real problem. Yeah. We are hearing more about it in the last few years. Some, some civics education projects pop, popping up. Um, so I think that y your book is, is timely, even though it couldn't be done five, ten years ago. It's timely now. I think very, very much so, especially all this talk about our democracy and, and uh, most of it, which is, is pretty thin and superficial and poorly informed. The title of the foreword is by former governor, uh, the, the foreword is by former governor William Weld and legislator Tom Birmingham. It has the title, Ignoring U.S. History at Our Peril. What, why is historical knowledge so important? I mean, this is the 21st century, Chris. Uh, you know, it's the digital age. What does that old stuff really have to do with us? Haven't, haven't, we, haven't we crossed a line that, that, that really separates us from the past to make it obsolete and irrelevant? Well, we've, we've passed several lines, I think, Mark, right? Uh, one of which is, uh, you know, you hear the argument, and there's some truth to this, I suppose. People say, well, you don't need, you know, you have the internet, you have Wikipedia, you have this, that, and the other thing. Um, and you don't really need to have all that knowledge stored in your brain. After all, you can just look it up. Well, sure, you can look it up in the privacy of your home. You can look it up while you're sitting on the train or in traffic or what have you. Um, but you can't look it up when you're in a job interview. And you can't look it up when you're at a cocktail party or trying to make an important deal with someone or trying to impress someone or a first impression of a potential spouse. Uh, you can't make it up when you're on, on a podium, you know, standing there t addressing 300 people because you've been the guest speaker at the Chamber of Commerce, what have you. There is a value in folks at any age having background knowledge, the cultural knowledge, the antecedents, um, a common language, if you will. And if you don't have that, um, it makes life more difficult and you come off as less authentic and less informed. And people take oppression, impressions away. But for young people particularly, the problem becomes that you have these enormous, enormously powerful tools, uh, you know, ChatGPT and other AI engines and the internet. And teachers are trying to fight this battle of plagiarism, right? To keep ahead of, one step ahead of their students and try to detect when the student has cheated or used someone else's material. We even see that, goodness gracious, at Harvard University and the president <laughs> lately. Um, but the problem becomes that if you don't have the context, if you can't generate something from your own brain and think back, okay, what, what informs my opinion? 
you know, what were the historical antecedents that, that I'm drawing upon to write my essay, my five paragraph essay, or my 10 page essay, or my job application, then you just, it shows, right? People notice that. And I still think that content is king, always and everywhere in the media, and whether it's electronic or print. And um, people do take note. Uh, they, they find false notes. And in this age, when you sound one of those false notes or you're called out on something, it can be not just embarrassing, not just uh, brutal. It can be uh, something that destroys your career if you, if you make such a, a false note. Or you, uh, just this week, um, you know, Nikki Haley was asked something about the Civil War. Her answer was something less than it might have been, shall we say. Um, and, you know, is it the end of the world in most cases? No. But over time, this kind of ignorance of history shows, and it shows too, and what um, Bill Weld and Tom Birmingham were talking about in this, uh, in the, the foreword to our book, is it shows a lack of civic knowledge leads eventually to a lack of civic participation. And that leads to a state, a town, a country, getting less than the best in, in the positions of power. Um, there are innumerable Americans today, what a year out from the from the next presidential election, who throw up their hands and say, oh, if only we had better choices. Okay, well, that process begins with civic education. You know, it begins with, with people on, the, on the, the ground floor looking around and finding talented folks and supporting them and not putting up with candidates who are less than the best. And, you know, whether one ultimately votes for the Democrat, the Republican, the Libertarian, the Green, or what have you, you want to think that the ballot presents the best and brightest available talent. And that's not always the case at any level in government. And uh, we can always do better. So part of that is knowing our history. Yeah, yeah. You know, you say it shows. It, it you know, it's almost to, to say, well, you can always look it up. It's, that's to convert the materials of, of the past in, in just information, right? And not something that can really be meaningful, can be inspiring, you know, role models that, that people would find. Great events, great sacrifices, you know, forms of, of uh, epic uh, uh, loyalty and epic betrayal as well that really should go to form a sensibility, right? Not just be... Oh, it's just, those are just facts, information, and, I, and when I need it, I, I take it. You know, you should have the some of the cadences of Lincoln's speeches in your head, right? And they should be part, sort of part of the air that, that you breathe. George Washington's great acts of, of withdrawal, those should be part of the sort of your civic virtue, right? That, that, that's the memory that you hold on, on to that. And uh, come on, it, 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 the past is more than that. Right, it's more than just just uh, stuff in 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 books. That's that's what we hope. Uh, and and actually actually in the next contributions by Paul Reed, he has a good saying by Winston Churchill. Quote, Churchill said, "In history lie all the secrets of statecraft." Now, do do school teachers would they buy that? How would, how would, I mean, I know you don't want, we, we don't want to knock teachers, but sort of the general, the general civics teacher attitude, would, 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 would they say, you know, one of the things we want to do is bring out the secrets of statecraft. Is that a goal? 
That's a good question. <laughs> I think you know, one of the reasons, at least in my view, for the retreat from the history, uh, the teaching, serious teaching of history and civics and the testing of it is that history and civics are instantly controversial in our age, right? I mean, math, you know, trig and calculus and pre-cal and algebra, pretty straightforward, a right answer and a wrong answer. Even English grammar, you know, as complex and <laughs> maddening as it can be sometimes, there's usually a right and a wrong answer or something fairly close. This is a, you know, the comma goes here and so forth. But once you cross that line into history and civics or uh, current events or however it's cast in the particular classroom, depending on what level they're in, um, it becomes very controversial. And it's very difficult, I think, for teachers to focus strictly on the past. Um, uh, my wife teaches Latin for, for many years, and for her it may be a little easier because everything is sort of action completed in the past, right? And you can argue, well, did Caesar do this or that, and was it right or wrong? But the historical record is fairly clear, and we have writings, and we can study them, and we can argue about it. But it isn't like we're arguing about something which is happening right now and has something to do with our tax rates or who's going to occupy the Oval Office and so forth. Um, so, yes, it, it can be very difficult. But as to statecraft, I mean, you pose that question, and then some are going to say, no, no, don't teach them about statecraft because we don't want them, we don't want to be creating young Machiavellis here. We don't want to be creating leftists or rightists. We just want kids to know things. But in knowing something, um, as you said a few moments ago, you get inspired by these stories, these archetypes. I mean, when, when I listen to, you know, on tape, it helps put me to sleep some nights. I listen to things like the Odyssey, you know, a great recording of the Odyssey. And you hear something that has echoed through the ages. And you take something away from that and those internal cadences and rhythms in your mind. Um, this is the reason that once upon a time, students were asked to memorize things. Because the things that you memorize stay with you. They become almost a part of your DNA. I know scientifically that's not accurate, but <laughs> I think you know what I mean. I mean, I can still recall um, lines of Virgil that I was asked to memorize in 11th grade. And that's been, it's been some years. Um, now, what do I do with that? Not much, but does it enrich my life? Absolutely. And it gives you a common language with other people as you go through life. You connect um, on so many levels, whether you're traveling, meeting new people, at a new job, etc., uh, because you have something you can talk about beyond, oh, it's a beautiful day today, or, you know, how is your latest uh, sports team doing, that sort of thing. So it's hugely important. Um, and I think ultimately it does contribute for many young people, uh, particularly those who go into political science or public service of some kind, with the goal of becoming a legislator and maybe aspiring to being president, who knows. Um, I think it does help and make a difference for them. Yeah. The next entry is by Robert Pondicio, Gilbert Sewell, and Sandra Stotsky. I've worked with Sandra before on some things. Uh, they start with test scores in, in the field, and it's it's really bad, right? It, are, are all 12th graders now at, at NAEP scores in U.S. history? Aren't they mostly below basic, which is sort of an F? Yes, absolutely. And that hasn't, that hasn't changed for, for decades, has it? No, it, it's, not, it's not getting better. And I don't think there's a lot of reason to expect that it would get better unless one does the old trick of changing the, the test, if you will, or adjusting, recentering it. Um, you may recall, I think it was in 1994 that the SAT was recentered because tests were, let's say, stagnant to be charitable. And they decided, well, we're going to recenter this so that the new scores 
whether they were higher or lower, I think only someone with an advanced degree in mathematics could have told you with any certainty. But they were certainly not comparable to what had come before. So it complicated the job of journalists, which I was at the time, of figuring out, well, are we doing better or are we doing worse? You, know, you, just, you just change the standards. Um, but that aside, I think it's fair to say, um, as you mentioned, that scores are bad and not getting better at least, uh, which is certainly a cause for concern. Well, one thing they note is that when you look at textbooks, those have deteriorated. They're not yes. as good as right. they used to be. I'm sure there's, they're, you know, the occasional exception, Bill McClay's book on, yep. on U.S. history. But overall, the, the quality of history in civic textbooks has declined. How would you, I mean, would you, would you characterize some of, the, some of those materials in terms of the, what, what, what their drawbacks might be? Well, I think the primary drawback, and this is probably common to all of them, that is, regardless of ideology or where they're coming from, and of course, one hopes that a text isn't written from an ideological perspective at all, um, but whether it leans right or leans left, the problem is a lack of depth in most cases. Um, um, you don't get the kinds of um, stories that you used to get. You know, I think back to the textbooks that I had in classes. They were pretty good, I thought. You know, there's a main narrative, and then you might see an inset or a sidebar over here. It might have a few pictures, and it tells you about the Trail of Tears, or it tells you about the Oregon Trail, or it tells you about Andrew Jackson and some of the horrible things that he did, and so on and so forth. But you do get a sense of the, the flow of history. Um, and I read a lot of history, and I, I keep going back to original sources, like uh, you know, Francis Parkman, not, a, I suppose, an original source, but a, certainly a great historian. And when you read um, Wolf and Montcalm about the, the, uh, you know, the events in Quebec, you really get a sense of, you know, it puts you right there. And I understand that modern textbooks can't do that because they don't have the time to do that. You know, they don't have the number of pages, but they could certainly do a much better job of faithfully taking quotations and extracts from the great works of the past, putting them into a comprehensible sequence and saying to students, read this and think about this and then reflect on it. How does this relate to your life and your circumstances? I, you know, I often think uh, there are so many great books out there that are unknown, books about specific states, writers from, you know, regional writers from certain states, um, narratives of the New England area, of course, is loaded with these wonderful old narratives, um, but they exist for other places, the Pacific Northwest, uh, in Texas, in the South. And if those works could be folded into a curriculum, maybe you don't have one curriculum or you have a, a national curriculum with regional variants or state-by-state -state standards, um, which is you know, really the idea behind uh, federalism in our country. Um, but that is one of the problems, uh, as, you, as you suggested earlier, is this lack of depth. And the other one, of course, is the bias that comes in. Um, in books like, you know, and we refer to this elsewhere in Restoring the City on a Hill, um, Howard Zinn's work, for example. And, and I hesitate to, you know, attack Mr. Zinn, the late Mr. Zinn. The fact is that there's a lot of information in his book that, I guess, to be fair and charitable, isn't wrong because there are legitimate criticisms to be made. The difficulty is that if you present that to young people without first giving them the basic story, they come away with a very warped perspective on the country. 
They come away thinking that the country was founded for all the wrong reasons and did nothing but terrible things to other people. When in fact, while the founders were very different people than we were in their sensibilities and their religious sensibilities particularly, their intentions were really good. <laughs> and we have to understand that the system they set up was genius because it's lasted for 250 years, right? So this is very important. Yeah. You know, Pioneer Institute has done a lot on Common Core. Did, did Common Core have an effect on history and civics instruction? Well, I think so. I think Common Core, like a lot of trends in, in our society, made things worse by dragging them down. I would call it lowest common denominator, really. Um, and sometimes, you know, here we are a number of years out from Common Core, and I say to folks, if only they did teach Common Core, if only that lowest common denominator were actually taught to and tested, things might not be quite as bad because while Common Core is far from the best, far from what it could and should be, it does at least do something, right? But a state like Indiana was the first to um, turn away from Common Core because they recognized quite rightly that it wasn't strong enough, that our children deserved far better than to just have this sort of mediocre, you know, lowest common denominator to share, that it, it can be much richer and more challenging than that. Um, that's something I think you've probably done a, a fair bit of reading of old textbooks and, you know, we're talking turn of the last century, 1800s into the 1900s. Some of the material that students were asked to master back then is truly daunting. It's extraordinary it stuff. And I think of an education system that is flexible enough to recognize that if you put a really high bar here and ask students to strive for it, you don't need to then give them a D or an F because they didn't get all the way there. They did really well. They may not have reached the gold standard, but they did really well. So teachers need to be have the flexibility to grade in accordance with what the students have actually achieved in relation to a very strong curriculum. But there seems to be, in our day and age, this idea, and maybe it's a result of the digital age, that, you know, how many quizzes have you taken online while you're doom scrolling on a Sunday morning? And it says, oh, you know, how well do you know your U.S. and civics? And you hit it, and you, you think to yourself, I hate myself for doing that again. But you, you hit the link, and you get 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10, and it gives you a smiley face and tells you you're a wonderful person. Well, what if you only got four and you'd never heard of the other six questions? Are you a bad person? No. You just haven't read enough, you know? So I say high standards and let the kids strive for this. But today the standards are so low, uh, you know, they get their participation trophies. And uh, there was a comic, uh, some comic strip I saw some time ago saying uh, participation, uh, existence trophies. You know, in my day we had to participate. <laughs> you get an existence trophy. <laughs> so. Very good. Well, the next entry uh, is by one of the great heroes of American education in the last 100 years, I think, E.D. Hirsch, who says at one point that civic and political discourse in the U.S. at the current time is in a terrible condition. Uh, what is his prescription to, to fix that? Yeah, it, he... Um... The downward path, right, that he talks about at the end of that chapter when he says America, American education started off on a downward path when the fuzzy ideas of Dewey replaced the hard-nosed ideals of Madison. I think it would be hard to come up with a better line than that to describe 
just what he's what he's aiming at. And he doesn't give a blow-by-blow prescription, if you will, on what to do. But it's fairly clear that in this particular chapter, um, Hirsch is pointing, and as he does in his books, pointing toward a, a long movement away from quality and away from rigor towards this touchy-feely, call it what you will, it's had many names over the years, right? Um, it expresses itself um, today in things like SEL and DEI. And again, there are kernels of truth in all these things. There are, you know, it's nice to be nice to people. I get that. You know, we want to be inclusive. Well, I think we were pretty inclusive. Um, and when, when Hirsch points to things in the curriculum that's failing, the curriculum may be failing because it has moved away from what was at one time um, really the best that it could be. I, I think, for example, to illustrate this, when you think about the history of the civil rights in, in the United States, we see this long history leading up to MLK and the civil rights era, activism, marches, um, and insistence on rights for all. I think, and st I, I thought then, and, and still think today, that America got it about right with MLK's idea of judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And yet what we see today is almost an, a cottage industry within education that is trying to force us backward, trying to say to people, because we need to recognize your unique identity as someone whose skin is not white, whether it's you know, black, brown, gray, yellow, what have you, we need to put you over here in this little box and have you only associate with folks who look like you and think like you. But that's not what MLK was saying, and that's not what America should be saying. We should be one nation under God. You know, that's the idea. Get everybody together and forge a common identity and put aside the divisions. And I'm afraid that instead we're going in the opposite direction. And Hirsch points to some of that. You, you see some of that symptom uh, in test scores that are, that are going down and staying down. Um, because we're focusing on all the wrong things. We're focusing on identity and grievance and division rather than on what unites us as a people. And that's what should be at the heart of a great curriculum. You and Jamie Gass uh, end the book with a piece entitled The Enduring Wisdom of the Founders. Enduring wisdom. What, what, is, what is your prescription in that conclusion? Our prescription is that folks, it really is one page, the, the concluding page, it kind of gets at this. And I, this is something I've kind of preached, I think it's probably not too strong a word, <laughs> to different media outlets um, since the book came out, is that you need parents need to take charge. They need to look around and assess what's going on with my child's school and understand that waiting for bureaucrats, waiting for states to make change, as important as that is, and as much as we advocate that states should improve their standards, if you are a parent and you're sitting here on, on your, your holiday break and you're not too happy with what happened during the fall, you need to go to the next school board meeting and make some noise. If you are a parent of a child in an inner city school, which is just plain terrible and has been for, oh, decades, you need to go to your local lawmaker and say, you know what, I want a choice, a real choice. I want a um, educational savings account program. I want a school choice program. I want a new charter school. Or here in Massachusetts, for example, I want the cap on charter school enrollments to be lifted. 
Now, when you put those things out in the ballot box, anything can happen. It usually does, right? Um, but change can happen in many other ways, directly and more immediately, if parents will simply take command. And um, with our own children, for example, we, we did a lot of homeschooling. And at a time when homeschooling wasn't as cool or hip or popular or necessarily, in every case, legal or <laughs> we didn't have any difficulties, but, you know, people need to be pioneers, um, you know, no pun intended, in this respect and understand that their children have a very narrow window in terms of a few years in which they're in that mode where they're listening to you and they're open to learning and you're still somewhat in charge of their lives. And you need to make sure they have the absolute best educational opportunity available. Um, you can go to all the school board meetings you want and sit there and say nothing and watch the process play out. But by the time it plays out in your favor, your child will be off to college or beyond. So you need to take action right away. And that last chapter is, is intended to describe the impatience that parents increasingly feel as they choose alternative schools. And we see alternative schooling and choices expanding uh, exponentially in this country, which is a, a great thing. And hopefully that will send a message to the traditional public schools, kind of hidebound, that they need to change as well, or they're going to lose lots and lots of customers. The book is City on a Hill, U.S. History and Civics in America's Schools. Chris Sinicola, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure.